Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer at New Mexico PBS. And today is Friday, July 16th, 2021. We hope you have had a terrific week. We have definitely been hard at work here at the show, gathering a lot of great information for you uh, for this podcast, as well as upcoming podcasts. And we're going to kick things off with our line opinion panel for this week. And we were joined by Julianne Grimm, the uh, publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. Always love to have Julianne here. Also, line regulars, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR and attorney Laura Sanchez. And we're going to start with something that if you are a watcher of the show on New Mexico PBS, you didn't get a chance to see, which is our weekly warm-up with the line where we go around and see what's on people's minds that we just don't have time to talk about in the show. It's always so hard every week to whittle down everything going on into two to three segments that we can cover in the show. And as usual... Lots of great stuff here, including uh, the struggles in Santa Fe, as we just saw recently play out in Albuquerque, to figure out some of the rules specific to Santa Fe around uh, zoning and regulations for uh, legal cannabis, which is now a thing here in New Mexico, as we've been talking a lot about. And while we're mentioning legal cannabis, we want to get on your radar that we are diligently at work on the third season of our cannabis podcast. It's called Growing Forward, a collaboration between ourselves and the New Mexico Political Report. Our hosts are familiar names to many of you. Megan Kamrick, who does correspondent work for us, and also the new news director at KUNM Radio. Congratulations to Megan on that. Looking forward to all kinds of great things from that. And Andy Lyman, who has been covering cannabis for the New Mexico Political Report for a lot of years. And uh, you can be looking for episode one of season three in the next couple of weeks, I think. Also, go back and listen to season one and two. Lots of great information there to prime you up for all everything we'll be talking about there. But for now, let's head right over to the line opinion panel for their one more thing. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with a line opinion panelist joining me right there on Zoom. Got a lot of great topics this week, including the big Virgin Galactic milestone at Spaceport America and a big name jumping into next year's gubernatorial race. But we want to spend a little extra time with our line of panel, line of panelists now, taking a look at some other issues that are on our minds. Let me start with Julianne Grimm up there in Santa Fe, editor and publisher of your wonderful paper, Santa Fe Reporter. What's your one more thing this week? 
Well, I just want to talk a little bit about local jurisdictions um, making rules that relate to the state's legalization of cannabis. Ah. Um, certainly viewers from Albuquerque are familiar with what's been happening there. But in Santa Fe, we have the Santa Fe County Commission starting to consider zoning rules. And they've also thrown a little bit of a wrinkle into things by proposing that people who take advantage of the personal grow provisions can only do that inside. Um, the shorthand is that means you can't plant your cannabis out there in the wonderful New Mexico sun. And uh, we think that the Santa Fe County constituents are going to have a few things to say about that. Uh, so that conversation's just begun. Uh, the city of Santa Fe is also just beginning to address its potential zoning rules, which means you probably won't be able to get a business license for a new cannabis business in the city um, much before the fall. Oh, wow. Was there a rationale be behind the indoor thing? What, what were they? Flower smell. Smell, really? Okay. Yeah, flower smell and your neighbors shouldn't have to smell your flowers. Huh, oh, that's gold. I'm gonna write some of that down. Right. <laughs> I see some t-shirts coming. I mean, that's, a, that's an issue. I, my understanding is that smell issue is for folks that live by a full-on production facility, not for someone growing six plants. I, I don't... Yeah, I think it's very, it's a, it'd be a huge enforcement challenge. Um, I would, you know, say the state government, the state lawmakers did not contemplate uh, counties limiting personal grow to indoors only. I, I never heard that come up in the, you never. know, hundreds of hours of conversation. So I don't think this is the last word on that. Uh, we're taping this on Thursday. Thursday evening is a Santa Fe County Planning Commission meeting where they will talk about this. Oh, I want to stream that. I want to watch that. That, that could be interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. That's all politics is local, and we all see it our own way locally, that's for sure. Tom Garrity, always good to have you on, certainly. Uh, we'll have you on the show, of course. We start taping in just a little bit, but for right now, what's your one more thing? Uh, right now, it is travel. Uh, you know, During the last month, I've had uh, reasons to travel uh, quite a bit, and uh, it's just kind of fun to first get out, and uh, you know, whether it be on air travel or, uh, or on the road, um, but, you know, the, the price of travel is really what has caught my attention lately. And we're, I know we'll talk about the $250,000 to go up into space and stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, the next closest thing is the $200,000 cost to get a one you know, last minute ticket. It doesn't cost that much, but it seems like it. Uh, yes. And you just can't really take those quick trips out to the coast yep. or you know, to Texas or Colorado. Uh, those are really significant round trip tickets, uh, you know, just south of $2,000 if you just want to you know, wait to the last minute. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that's just really, you know, that sticker shock is going to put more people on the road, which I actually kind of prefer uh, outside of all the dings that I get on my windshield and, you know, I have to get that fixed. But, <laughs> right. uh, you know, just the open road is, is calling. And I just think it's great for all of us to take advantage of, you know, what there is in New Mexico, because we really until you travel into other states. You just really, you know, kind of appreciate what we have here in the land of enchantment. I, I love hearing that. My fellow boomer romantic, I love that, absolutely. But I tell him, I got, I got to ask you also, when international travel opens up at some point, do we stand again? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's, um, uh, we, New Mexico will stand to gain, but, you know, there's so many different variables, you know, especially with COVID restrictions like Australia. Um, you right. know, they were open for business and now they're closed down again. Yep. So, you know, once all that gets filtered out, you know, I think we're all, you know, all ships are going to rise as far as the tourism goes. Uh, and New Mexico will definitely benefit from the international travel. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Laura Sanchez, always good to see you, of course. What's your one more thing this week? 
Um, so uh, Julianne talked about the cannabis industry and a couple of weeks ago, there was a cannabis conference at the Albuquerque uh, Convention Center. Mm -hmm. And what caught my eye was, of course, the Larry Barker um, scandal uh, where he basically cornered Laura Meyer Sackett, the, or Nora, excuse me, Meyer Sackett, the um, press secretary for the governor. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just terrible behavior from a, a journalist. And, could, could, you, um, could you describe that for the folks in case they're not familiar with the situation? Yeah, it was apparently a situation where, mm -hmm. um, of course, uh, Nora is the, um, you know, gets to deal with reporters, journalists, others who are wanting to have time on the governor's schedule. And so apparently Larry Barker was there trying to catch the governor in between speaking um, at, at the conference and other obligations that she had. And there had been a, a discussion apparently where he was told she could give him a few minutes mm -hmm. and then because of time constraints um, wasn't able to. So he got in Nora um, Meyer Sackett's face and um, cornered her. And there's this terrible picture, I think, where she where he's basically wagging his finger at her right. unmasked and she has a mask and is sort of backed into a corner. And I just think that that's, that's really poor behavior. And I was happy to see that the Rio Grande chapter of the um, Society of Professional Journalists um, dinged him for that, said they were appalled by his behavior. And I think everybody should be appalled by that kind of behavior. Uh, you know, Larry Barker has a reputation for being very hard hitting and get, you know, getting in people's face. And I think that's sort of the, mm -hmm. um, you know, figuratively what we think of. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we expect or that we want somebody to behave that way and actually get in somebody's face when they're unhappy with what has occurred. I mean, that's just not um, good journalism. It's not good human behavior. I mean, we don't want to do that sort of thing. And so I was glad to see that KRQE um, uh, put out a statement uh, right. condemning basically his behavior, saying that they would be dealing with it as a personnel matter. Um, but I think it really uh, just, I think it, in terms of the respect that Larry Barker's had, it probably took him down a few pegs um, because of his behavior on that. And he's you know, he needs to re reel it back in. Mm -hmm. And based on different media reports, he, you know, he did apologize. He reached out directly to uh, the press, press secretary and apologized. And so, you know, I think that there's some, you know, reconciliation that has taken place. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was very uncomfortable to see, uh, you know, uh, but. Julianne, it's also important think? to note that that photograph was taken by a competing, a competing yes. television journalist. And there were a lot of people in that room who could have stepped up to say something to affect that situation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's worth noting. And yeah. I will say that, you know, to define and which I don't think anybody is doing, but, you know, Larry Barker's career uh, is, is much more than that one incident. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he, you know, he will only resort uh, to an ambush interview after people have, uh, and I know this just because having worked with him for you know a number of years prior to getting to public relations, uh, he'll only do an ambush interview uh, if for some reason people are avoiding him or they change the rules as this particular uh, incident you know demonstrated doesn't justify it at all. I'm mm -hmm. not suggesting that, but uh, you know I it'd be a shame to know or to think that his career is defined by this one uh, On that point, I got a question for all of you. Uh, you know, sometimes in life it happens that a still photograph, and that still photograph was terrible. I mean, that he had his finger like inches from her face and she's backed up to a wall. I mean, it's just terrible. Video, however, is another deal altogether. And sometimes that could show a very different context. Does anybody, into, I'm not defending Mr. Barker here, but I'm just kind of putting it out there. Is anybody anticipating maybe a different feeling on this if video actually came out versus that one still photograph? 
I mean, if there had been some context, perhaps we could have mm -hmm. uh, a different understanding of the dynamic, how it evolved. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, part of the frustration for me, at least when I watch some of these journalists, especially, you know, TV media, you see so many um, accomplished, uh, very effective female journalists who are just sort of put out to pasture, right? I mean, mm -hmm. folks who are in, in the, and, and we can name them, right? There's people, Monica Armenta, who now works for APS. There's, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the lady who works at uh, um, the Rail Runner now. And she was also uh, Augusta oh, sure. Meyer. Augusta Meyer, sure. you know, Different people like that. And they just sort of get put out to pasture when they get a- I, I don't think either one of them would, are, I would never say saying that, that they were put out to pasture, not in the huh, least. The point that I'm making is that they're both very effective women who for whatever reason were shown the door when there's a lot of men that are much older and continue to be in this role. And I just kind of, I look at that tactic and I understand he has a long career, but I look at that tactic and I wonder, are you just over, are you round the bend now, Larry Barker? Like, you know, are you are you round the bend? Is it time to hang it up? That's just what, that's the point I'm making, okay? Mm -hmm. It pisses me off when some of these good journalist women are sort of, you know, you're no longer camera worthy or whatever happens that they have to take these other jobs when you have behavior like this from people like Larry Barker. That's the point I'm making. That's an interesting point there. It's, uh, I, I don't know those two women particularly. I don't know why they left their jobs. I didn't, you know, sometimes it's just more money in our market that, you know, that affects these things. But your point is well taken. I hear your, I hear your overall point there. And uh, I think that Channel 13 came out so quickly with that apology and, and Larry Barker. Perhaps we've turned a corner here, not to riff on your, he's gone around the, the bend here, but Perhaps cooler heads will prevail at some point and uh, everything will be okay. Hey, but uh, let me go to Nora here for a quick second. She's no shrinking violet. She's, she knows how to handle herself. She can handle the Larry Barkers of the world. Um, and she had some very tough quotes afterwards about it. So I'm curious, Julianne, is there a way to handle these things when you're on the okay, receiving end of these things? It. You can handle it, mm -hmm. but should you have to handle it? when a man gets that close to you right. and puts his hand in your face. And that's what, you know, women in, in careers that span, you know, all the professions, you, you, you're expected to know how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And it is a, it is a, you know, gold star for you if you know how to deal with that and you manage yourself effectively when a man comes at you like that. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it, what our culture, what needs to change. Um, I just want to say that I'm not, uh, saying those comments, particularly about this situation, um, because I wasn't there mm -hmm. and um, I have heard lots of conflicting reports about, you know, exactly the circumstances. Um, you know, one person told me that Nora did shut the door behind her and create that very tight space. But I do think that as a human being, you know, maybe you should back up, Larry. Mm. Good last word there. Have to wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. All right, we're going to stick with the line panel for this episode. Three great conversations. We start with the news of the week here in New Mexico. How many of you sat down Sunday morning to watch Virgin Galactic's historic launch into space uh, with a fully manned space flight team, including 
Virgin Galactic founder Richard Branson. Of course, that came out of New Mexico. Virgin Galactic, the tenant, anchor tenant of Spaceport America. And so it was a, a big deal for Virgin Galactic, but also for New Mexico. If you watched the Virgin Galactic live stream, you saw New Mexico True as a co-presenter. That did not come without uh, a hit to the bottom line, but lots of good press for New Mexico overall. It will be uh, time will be the factor to tell how much of an economic boost the spaceport is for New Mexico. But this was a big day in the new space race, and so we wanted to talk to the line folks about what they thought of the launch and the long-term impacts for New Mexico, uh, particularly in southern New Mexico where Spaceport is located. This is an economic driver there in a part of the state that doesn't have a lot of other opportunities, uh, but it's also something that taxpayers down there uh, are f still footing the bill for uh, in terms of getting the Spaceport built in the first place. So lots to dive into here. Let's head right back to host Gene Grant and the line opinion panelists. Finally, right? After years of missed deadlines, Virgin Galactic made good on Richard Branson's promise to send people into space from New Mexico desert a half dozen at a time with what the company called a fully crewed flight on July 11th. Mark that date in infamy. Now we care, of course, because taxpayers have shelled out hundreds of millions of dollars on the venture. So here to talk through when or if New Mexico can expect a payoff is our line opinion panel attorney and longtime line regular Laura Sanchez is back. Editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter, our friend Julianne Grimm returns this week, as does another line regular Tom Garrity. Since you're the marketing guy, Tom, let me start with you. That broadcast reminded us all that this is a commercial venture, didn't it? It is, yeah, and it, it, the commercial venture provided a lot of great exposure for the state of New Mexico. And while you know the actual event was uh, focused on Richard Branson and his investment, uh, the day two story uh, was really focused on why New Mexico was selected. And I think that it was a big win for New Mexico because uh, the state is seen as an early adopter, you know, having uh, started investing in this project uh, more than a decade ago. So, you know, there's a lot of definite pros, obviously a lot of uh, money invested by the state and people are wondering where that return on investment is. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we, we got a, a part of that back on July 11, and I think that we're uh, actually going to be seeing more and more uh, in the space tourism. But, you know, Spaceport is really more than uh, Virgin Galactic. Uh, you know, there are also a lot of other missions out there, uh, which we can talk about another time. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so it's a great win for New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Laura, are you in agreement? Great win for New Mexico? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of space. I think anybody who watches me on here knows that I'm a, a big yes, fan yes, of the sci-fi and the Star <laughs> Trek and the Star Wars. And um, so for me, the, this is this is just amazing. It's so nice to be part of something positive, something, um, you know, looking into the future. We got a lot of accolades across the country. Well, Branson did, of course, in Virgin Galactic, but all of it with the background of New Mexico, a lot of remotes happening from here, which was nice. And so anything we can do to um, to boost our presence, I think, and our uh, our national um, picture and people can can learn more about it. And of course, all of the stuff that I saw had New Mexico true on the top, um, you know, left corner. So that's always nice branding. Um, and hopefully people uh, checked out our state website for some tourism. Mm -hmm. Julianne, pick up on that. I'm glad Laura mentioned the Zia logo. I, I, I got to say of all the feedback I saw on Facebook, 
that might have been the number one thing for locals here that they were the most proud of, to see that on that uh, spaceship like that. What's the value, all that kind of a thing? Is it just for us? Is it for others? I mean, how do you see the value there? I mean, I think people are definitely excited. We've all, you know, been watching the stars, so to speak, and it's been decades that these projects have been underway with some fits and starts. So I think that's been really exciting for our state. Um, I think though in this time, it is really hard for a lot of people to hear the word billionaire and be excited about it, especially when New Mexico remains at the bottom of all the education rankings in the mm -hmm. United States. Um, it's hard for people, some people to stomach the spending on the space race, um, even though much of it is private. As Dan pointed out, there's also a lot of public investment here. You've got the counties of Doña Ana and Sierra that are repaying, you know, a couple hundred million dollars worth of debt for the spaceport. Just to kind of put that in perspective, that's about the same amount of money that the city and county of Santa Fe spent on the Buckman Direct Diversion Project, which wow. provides water for all the people that live um, in this region, it's just one of the sources. So um, mm -hmm. while I think it's exciting, I think it's also brought up, you know, a lot of issues about economic conditions and disparity. And um, again, it's 600 people have bought tickets to use this commercial space travel to ride what's essentially like a carnival ride into space to get a view of the earth. Um, they're paying more than $200,000 each to do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think from where many of us sit, that just is uh, hard to understand. Julie, are you space shaming? Is that <laughs> what's happening here? No, you know, my dad's a big space fan. He's already signed up for the sweepstakes. And, you know, I hope he gets to go. And I, I know it's fun for people, but I just want to bring up that, like, it's not all unicorns and rainbows and mariachis, as mm -hmm. we like to say here mm -hmm. in New Mexico. It's a reasonable point. Tom, you can pick up on that as well, if you if you would. You know, you know, for a lot of people, it's a lot of angst here about this. A little bit of a heartburn that, you know, you've got a, a thousand people on the ground you know, making sure this thing operates correctly and we don't get that kind of attention in lots of other parts of our life. Is it a separate deal to you? Should we just consider these things separately or, or how should we mix them if we have to? Yeah, well, you know, everything has a place, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we can definitely focus on, you know, what, you know, how else could that money have been spent? Uh, and then we can look at the other areas where public money is being spent, whether mm -hmm. it be, uh, you know, education, whether it be uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, all of those are, are very important issues. And all of those are, are being funded uh, to the level that elected officials need it to be funded. But I think that there's a, a big need and what we saw here uh, over this last 10 years, uh, not just in spaceport, but a variety of other areas is a public private partnership. Mm. Uh, and those public private partnerships take place in a variety of different uh, scenarios, whether it's in universities, the national labs, uh, spaceport is just one small part of that particular area that happened to get a lot of publicity, uh, you know, over, you know, the last, you know, couple of weeks. Mm. Hey, Laura, I got a, I got a business question for you here. Um, Virgin Galactic signed a 20-year lease to be the anchor tenant at Spaceport. Tom mentioned there's other things going on there, certainly. But that means probably six years of actual business operations doing what they said they are going to do a few, years, a few years ago. And the idea of a new contract has been just a little not there quite yet. Are we in trouble here in just a couple of years? I don't know that it's time to panic or think that we're in trouble. I think mm -hmm. that it takes a long time to negotiate these kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. It took a long time. You know, it was interesting to, to read some of the coverage and see uh, Governor Bill Richardson commenting 
on this and talking about how it was uh, vindication to a certain extent of his thoughts back when, right. when this was just an idea. Uh, that was always very interesting. I was around during that time, as I'm sure many of you were um, in those discussions, but it takes a long time to negotiate these kinds of deals. So I'm not sure that we're in a place yet where we need to be um, concerned. I think that you know this this will be something hopefully if if it goes well barring any kind of huge disasters which you know is a possibility always um i think that we're we're in a good place to see more of this to come mm -hmm. but the price remains an issue um you know i'll just use you as, a, as an example what's your number to go to space is it fifty thousand a hundred thousand a hundred fifty thousand you personally what would you pony up to, to go into space me personally yeah you know, I'm I'm really really happy to be a spectator on this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, you know, I don't even ride amusement park rides to be honest. With you. <laughs> so um, I just I, I'm really interested in sort of watching it unfold, um, but I'm not interested in doing it myself personally. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. You know, I'm, I'm okay just right above the clouds. There you go. Yeah, I think that the $200,000 uh, ticket price mm -hmm. uh, is really low end. I mean, because you, know, you figure when those tickets went on sale, probably what, five years ago? Uh, you know, now, I, I would imagine that that price is going to absolutely, no pun intended, skyrocket because, uh, you know, the cost of doing business has just uh, increased exponentially. Competition has increased, which would typically decrease price. Mm -hmm. But with uh, Jeff Bezos and his, uh, you know, his launch, will be, which will be taken just south of uh, New Mexico, uh, you know, there's uh, $200,000 is... Uh, is a bargain, I think, as, as far as what we'll find here in the future. Interesting point there. Julianne, can we expect that if Branson and Virgin Galactic are making money, that New Mexico is going to make money as well? You know, I don't know. I was thinking about that in the context of all the different pieces here. And, you know, I'm curious about whether that ticket revenue uh, is, you know, are we getting a GRT on every ticket sold? <laughs> nice. um, and, and how did they set that up? You know, New Mexico has not really locked in this whole buying things on the internet and collecting the tax revenue situation. So yeah. I'm curious about that. Although, you know, you may be aware and readers, uh, watchers may be aware that the um, GRT system in New Mexico is very private. You know, we're not gonna know exactly how much came from which businesses and why. Um, that's just the nature of the laws here about that kind of disclosure. Yeah. So you can't, I worked at Tax and Rent for a little while, so you, you can't know specifically which taxpayers are paying what, but when you see an increase um, from a certain sector in, let's say, Doniana County and Sierra County, um, over time, you will probably be able to see some trends that will indicate that there is a GRT coming in. And I'll tell you that, I mean, I would be very surprised if there was any, and we could probably look this up, if there was any kind of GRT exemption for this, mm. pretty much if you're providing a service in the state of New Mexico, you're paying your GRT. And if you're not paying it, they'll get you eventually. So I do think that there will be some GRT revenue coming from this over time. Interesting point there. Hey, Tom, just a couple of minutes left here, but I got to get this in. The tourism department, interestingly, is closely tracking the, develop the development of the travel market to and from spaceports. That's interesting, you know? Essentially, the spaceport becomes another airport. So the tourism department thinks that might eventually be a larger pool of money than those looking for an up and back trip from the spaceport. Does anyone have a sense of what that market would be, Tom? Do you have, is that a viable angle here? I think it's an angle. Whether it's a viable angle, I think only time will tell. You know, the Department yeah. of Tourism is very much invested in this. You know, they uh, they did 
pay $1.5 million for the presented by New, Me New Mexico True That's right. that appeared on all the Virgin Galactic uh, videos. So, you know, they're they're wanting to see success. I think that, uh, you know, potentially tracking the spaceport as, you know, in the same way that they track Santa Fe Airport, the Sunport, uh, you know, uh, we will have to see if, if there's a lot of revenue to be generated from that. But, uh, you know, I think that what it really, the bigger story is, is that you have, uh, you know, the spaceport is to economic development, what Balloon Fiesta is to tourism. And so I think that the spaceport, uh, you know, angle is really more of an economic development pitch mm -hmm. as far as why uh, businesses are being based down in Southeast New Mexico, Albuquerque's, uh, you know, uh, emerging presence in the aerospace industry. Yeah, so that's really the, I think, the, the big takeaway from uh, the successful launch and landing. Mm -hmm. Laura, just last word on this. Uh, Tom got us going on this space tourism. You think about 17 years ago when people started throwing in that term around, people were like, what? You know, this is not even possible. I, I, now that we've gotten off the ground, so to speak, are you more optimistic about the future for New Mexico and space tourism? Or, or about the same, what's your, your sense of it? No, I am more optimistic, certainly. I mean, I think this was a huge, um, uh, you know, stake in the ground, so to speak, on on getting that entire uh, industry off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, intended, although it's pun day apparently on, for all of us, um, <laughs> but I do think that, uh, that it makes a huge difference. And for those communities that don't see a lot of traffic, like we do here in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, you know, those are established tourist kind of destinations across the country. But in areas like, you know, Sierra County, truth or consequences, some of the hot springs down there, which are great, if you ever had, have a chance to go down there, mm -hmm. um, Las Cruces and some of its outdoor recreation, I think it's going to be huge for those areas. And if they can bundle up some of those um, activities for folks as they come through New Mexico, it's going to be really huge for those counties. Good last point there. We'll have to set the spaceport aside for the time being. This group is back talking politics in just a few minutes. Next up for the line opinion panel, we look at elections. We are uh, a year away from the midterm elections, which in New Mexico also means a gubernatorial election. We have had a handful of Republicans throw their hat in the ring to uh, face off with Governor Michelle Luan Grisham, who has already announced her plans to seek re-election. And we just got another big name in the mix. It is state legislator Rebecca Dow. Um, deep ties into oil and gas in southern New Mexico. And uh, so the race is definitely heating up. And, of course, the governor is also uh, in the midst of uh, dealing with everything coming out of COVID-19 and everything that she did there uh, with the public health orders, which, of course, some people liked and some people didn't and will no doubt be a factor for folks as they head to the polls next year. So I want to talk about the governor's vulnerability, what kind of issues may rise to the top in this election, and what the addition of Rebecca Dow means in that race. We are still a long way from the Republican gubernatorial primary next year, and it is still anyone's race, but a relatively big name entered the contest last week. TRC Representative Rebecca Dow says she's in. And Laura, this was rumored and even expected in most circles. Now, how does it change the Republican contest, though, and potentially the general election for governor? What's the, what do you see here from her announcement? Well, it's certainly interesting. I mean, we're, we're seeing another female from southern New Mexico um, 
jump in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it reminds me of Susana Martinez jumping in. Although at this point, Rebecca Dow probably has a bigger profile than Susana Martinez had back then, which is um, very interesting to me. There's the potential to definitely um, get more um, support behind her. Mm -hmm. And I think um, trying to solidify some of those pockets of support around, well, not really pockets, it's, it's largely solid in southern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So um, the other folks that are in now, there's, of course, um, I'm going to forget his name, uh, Commissioner Block from yep. um, Jay Block from Sandoval Jay County. Block. Yeah, I was going to say Jerome, but I knew that wasn't right. Mm -hmm. That's all right. <laughs> Commissioner Jay Block from uh, Sandoval County. I mean, he's going to have some very strong connections um, in the metro area. Uh, but of course, uh, you have to have that statewide connection. I'm not mm -hmm. sure he's very well known in southern New Mexico, but he has the potential to raise a lot of money, as does Rebecca Dow. Rebecca Dow, I think, has a very strong backing from a lot of folks in the oil and gas sector, others down in southern New Mexico. So I think this, this really makes it an interesting primary. And it, of course, will be interesting if she ends up being the nominee and then you have two women um, vying for the mm -hmm. uh, gubernatorial race. Mm -hmm. um, that could be an interesting dynamic. Not, not bad there. Hey, Tommy, get the sense that Ms. Dow is the front runner. Some politicos think she is. I'm not talking about Laura, what she just said now, but you know, there was an almost an instant Whoa, she's right at the front of the line, you know, when she announced. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, I, I believe that she definitely is a front runner right now. Uh, you know, what I'm kind of looking at is, you know, what are the key messages that we'll be hearing throughout this uh, campaign, which is, you know, small business, small business recovery, education, infrastructure, and then which candidate is really kind of playing into that particular realm. And uh, you have the candidates who have declared so far, um, I think, uh, Rebecca Dow definitely checks more of those boxes than some of the other candidates, not saying that the other candidates don't. I just mm -hmm. think she does a better job of it. I also like what Laura had in that comparison to Susanna Martinez. Um, you know, I, I didn't really make that bridge. So, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a potential, but uh, I think it reinforces what her place is in this campaign right now, which is the temporary front runner. Mm -hmm. But we have to keep in mind that, you know, the official filing date isn't until February. And so there are many months still ahead before all this stuff settles down. Mm -hmm. Good points we'll start there. Start collecting signatures on October 1st. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, Julianne, you're in a deep blue city, of course, uh, not a deep red one. Now, from a campaigning standpoint for statewide races, is there anything you've seen successful Republicans candidates do to peel off critical Democratic votes in your area? Is there, is there a, a secret there for Santa Fe and Santa Fe County? Well, certainly there are a lot of conservative Democrats and unaffiliated voters in the north, um, not just in the city, but, you know, further north, especially where you have that sort of um, entrenched, you know, people who are Democrats, but who align with the Republicans on some issues that become prominent in these types of elections. Mm. Um, you know, as I was making notes for the show this morning, I was thinking about how many months we have ahead of us of watching these GOP candidates on television with guns in their hands and babies in their arms, mm -hmm. not at the same time, hopefully, but we're going to see both of that because of the you know reproductive freedom issue and because of the Second Amendment issue that the GOP just you know really latches onto for its its core messaging. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen that recently, and I think we'll see that more. Um, I agree that it's really interesting to have all these candidates, you know, in, in 2010, when Susanna Martinez emerged and, and went on to, you know, beat Diane Dinesh in the general election, there were five GOP candidates that year. 
And then you might remember, too, that in 2014, when she's running for re-election, there's five Democrats who are trying to fight it out in the, the primary. So while it seems like a lot of names and a lot of heads in the race right now, it's not unusual for New Mexico gubernatorial politics. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it, it's a bit of a wild card uh, right now at, at this stage. I so appreciate that perspective. That, that you know, history as they say, you know, echoes, it doesn't repeat, it echoes. Just real point of interest, Jay Block was mentioned from Sandoval County, Karen Bodoni, Navajo CD3 candidate, she's in, Tim Walsh, you guys know him, he's a retired educator and also Gary Johnson's advisor uh, back then. And Greg Zanetti, who came out first, uh, as we all know and announced, he's a veteran and a financial advisor, so the field is sorta in there. But I do have a question, um, Laura, let me start with you on this, I'd like to get a take from Tom as well. In fairness, we have to ask this, how vulnerable is Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham right now? Is, is the angst about how she managed the pandemic going to be impactful so many months in the future? Laura, what, what's your feeling on that one? Well, I mean, I, I certainly think that that's going to be an issue for mm -hmm. her. I think that she will have to have a strategy that um, addresses that, but focuses on the successes. I mean, the bottom line is, yes, a lot of people have had um, a lot of heartburn over the policies that she had, the closures, especially the impact of certain communities and just the business loss. There's, our, there's businesses that still haven't reopened. But on the other hand, we also have seen a lot lower rates of um, COVID deaths than other states. And we still, you know, we have a huge vaccination rate here in New Mexico, um, which is not the case in some of our neighboring states. So she has some successes to show for that as well. So I think that a, a good, a well-crafted strategy to discuss that is going to be necessary. I think they're going to try to put her on the defensive and she's just going to have to stay positive about all of her accomplishments mm -hmm. and, and what that means for New Mexico long-term. Mm -hmm. So I think that she will have to address it, but I wouldn't call it a vulnerability. I think that the, the uh, registration and the turnout it still is what it is. It's still largely mm -hmm. Democrat. Independents tend to vote Democrat um, or have in recent years. And so um, it just really depends who emerges from, from that uh, Republican primary and then how they uh, you know, sort of square off for the general. Important point there. Tom's still on that question, but you know, when I think about it, if I'm Rebecca Dow, that's where I'm going first. I'm taking all the angst from the southern part of the state, from the business community, and that's how I'm launching. That's, that's, I'm going to circle Albuquerque, I'm going to circle Santa Fe, you know what I mean, and kind of build a the anger movement, so to speak, and kind of keep that going. But is that viable? Can that really hold up all these months until election day comes? Well, you know, there's the primary strategy and then there's the general election strategy. Excellent point. Primary strategy, you know, like for Greg Zanetti right now, he's focusing on military uh, messaging. Mm -hmm. um, that will work real well in Republican circles and getting him the nom a nomination if that's what the, the party decides. But on the larger scale, um, there's just not that much capacity uh, so, you know, you need a diversification of message. You know, the vulnerabilities that uh, the governor faces, mm -hmm. uh, you know, includes, uh, you know, cabinet turnover, uh, also includes, uh, you know, uh, handling of the pandemic. But at the same, you know, that those issues can also be flipped to a positive, uh, you know, to those who uh, who are supporters of the governor in that, you know, the uh, there are some who believe that just as much that it impacted negatively small business with only 60 percent small businesses making it through the pandemic period. Mm -hmm. uh, she can very easily point to the number of New Mexico lives that were saved and the overall response that uh, really uh, made New Mexico healthier. So, you know, there's you know, to every con, there's a pro. And, uh, you know, so pros and cons are going to come into play. It just depends what your perspective is of the of the current governor. 
Let me start with Julianne here and take a, a swipe at the time we have left. Talk about what the big issues will be. Let's set aside the pandemic. Uh, let's talk about the general election, what the issues will or maybe should be in your view. I think there's one other thing to think about when you're you're talking about what the governor might brag on or what she may be vulnerable about. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the legalization of cannabis. Ah. You know, cannabis sales are going to start in the Good spring point. of 22, a few months before this election uh, takes place. And I think that there are a number of independent voters that, you know, supported that legalization effort. And I think that there are also going to be people on the attack um, who are kind of more crime and punishment types. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to see that kind of come up again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, speaking of crime and punishment, I think policing is a big issue that, um, you know, the governor, frankly, has not addressed uh, in, in, in a meaningful way mm -hmm. uh, during her time. And I think that um, the, the GOP candidates are going to have an even more, uh, you know, a different perspective about that than I think some of what the progressive voters want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, there's not a great degree of accountability for um, police in our state when they kill people, their discipline records um, are not public, and there's a number of issues. So I'm hoping that that issue, you know, there's a, a little bit of pressure on, on that front. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly think we're going to be talking about education again, as I brought up earlier. Um, we've got the Yazi Martinez case uh, ruling where the state is really um, under order to increase um, equity in education. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's going to um, come up quite a bit. Issues about childcare and um, support for uh, insurance systems and healthcare overhaul. I think, you know, remember that Governor Lujan Grisham has a big background in um, health and in That's human right. services. And, and I think that that is also likely to come up, you know, quite a bit during the election. We'll see, as they say. We'll have plenty more time to talk about the race, but we'll have to stop for now. Now, this group is back for one final topic. What happens when tough on crime policies run up against the realities of the criminal justice system? And we'll wrap things up for this podcast with the line, just like we started. There was a great article in the Albuquerque Journal this week about how uh, the tough on crime stance in New Mexico that we've really seen over the last decade or so with punishments for crimes and things being upped by the legislature is really leading to a backlog, some crazy numbers to think about where especially public defenders having to face uh, on any given day the possibility of up to two dozen hearings or trials, uh, really an unsustainable situation there. We've done a lot of talk and reporting over the years about lack of funding for our judiciary in the state and in the Albuquerque Journal article, the DA from or not, not the DA, a public defender from southern New Mexico, uh, is really raising the red flag here about the overworking and the lack of resources when it comes to a lot of these cases. And a fascinating conversation here with our line panel about how that can vary somewhat depending on what part of the state you're in and what sort of the political climate is in. But as you're going to hear time and time again, there is solid agreement that the resources are just not there for our courts right now, and we will see what the legislature and others do to deal with that in the coming years. But a great conversation here. Let's head back over to host Gene Grant. Republican and Democratic lawmakers often like to take and cultivate a tough-on-crime image 
That's certainly true in the legislature and almost a guarantee when it comes to candidates for district attorney. But there's another side to that policy. A recent Albuquerque Journal article highlighted the 12th judicial district where public defenders say they're buried by nearly 300 felony cases that are scheduled for a four-week period starting later this month. Now, the DA down there, that's Alamogordo and Rui Doso, by the way, says his prosecutors have to prepare for those cases, too. And the chief judge says most of those trials won't actually take place. But, Laura, you're a kind of a natural place to start here. Do the public defenders have a point about being able to prepare an effective defense? Let's just start with the real basics of law here. Oh, absolutely. I think mm -hmm. they have a very valid point. You know, we're talking about something like 24 trials or 20, 24 different hearings in a day. Right. Um, so it's unclear which ones of those would actually be dismissed or postponed and which ones would move forward with, with trial. It, I mean, there's just no way to sort of know that from, from a preparation standpoint. So one of the points they bring up is they have to be prepared for every trial, right. which makes it very, very difficult to provide an adequate defense. Now, on the flip side, the prosecutor is also in a similar situation, right? Mm -hmm. I and mean, that's a lot of coordinating potential witnesses, talking about you know uh, law enforcement, other eyewitnesses, whoever is part of the docket. I mean, you really, I think somebody said this, it was a circus-like atmosphere. Right. I can imagine that because you just don't have that level of um, resources. Uh, and these are, these are areas, I've actually had um, cases down there before, not in criminal, but in civil case when I was in private practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, they're very small courtrooms. Everybody pretty much knows everybody in terms of the staff. Um, and it's, it's gonna be very difficult for them to be able to, to do this adequately. So I think it is a crisis-like situation and not a unique one to the 12th Circuit, which is Alamogordo Riadoso you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, but could also occur in a lot of other um, areas around the state. Mm -hmm. You know, Julianne, you know, Laura just mentioned the nightmare scenario. We got reporting that people are waiting in their cars each day <laughs> to find out if they'll be needed to be a juror or a witness. I mean, that's not tenable. And so that's not ideal, but does it seem like prosecutors are overcharging? Is that part of the problem here? I mean, that's certainly a point that, um, you know, Bennett Bauer, the chief public defender, raised um, with respect to this 12th judicial district. Again, this is in that, you know, crime and punishment part of the state mm -hmm. in, you know, southern New Mexico and Otero and Lincoln counties. Um, and I think that, you know, that argument without really looking at the data and the, the kind of cases that are being um, presented, it's really hard to make it a, an outside judgment of that. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely in, in that journal story, the um, the prosecutor there, the district attorney, is not an apologist for right. that. He says, like, this is what people want. They want me to uh throw the book at at these you know suspected alleged criminals and they want uh, they don't want me to make plea deals mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting this is not universally the way that district attorneys feel you know uh, Santa Fe elected Mary Carmack outwise here um, you know again the data is kind of not there yet because it's it's new mm -hmm. but uh, our district attorney up here uh, Rio Arriba Los Alamos in Santa Fe County has said let's keep people out of the court system Right. Let's divert people who are facing, you know, small charges that are related to um, drugs and behavioral health. Um, and I think that her uh, perspective about that is really going to, you know, we'll see if that changes things. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's quite different from what the guy in the 12th is saying. Isn't that interesting? I, that but distinction. I, Go ahead, Laura. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not really surprising. You know, you, you, you get elected from a certain area. Santa Fe is what it is. That entire area is pretty... Um, liberal, 
or I mean, not, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but mm-hmm. <laughs> they're progressives, right? They're much, they're going to be very different on crime than some of these rural areas. And so the district attorneys, unfortunately, because of the type of system that we have where they get elected, they're going to, they're going to reflect what their electors are wanting from right. them or else they're not going to be elected again. Right. Right. You have people that are tough on crime on the one hand, on the other hand, are, are messaging the way um, Santa Fe is. Here in Albuquerque, we see sort of a hybrid of the two, but ultimately people here want to see tough on crime also, mm-hmm. right? More so probably than Santa Fe. So I think this kind of reflects the diversity of our state. Um, and it's very difficult for some of these prosecutors to, you know, to, to see where that fine line is, right? Mm-hmm. Where you need to do your job, but you also need to make sure that you're reflecting whatever your, your electors want from you. Interesting points there. Uh, Tom, the DA previously mentioned, Scott Key, on apology, on apology. Uh, unapologetically said nobody pleads guilty to something they didn't do, (laughs) which is kind of ridiculous because that's just wrong. We've seen that time and again for all kinds of reasons. In this situation, that caseload means there's a natural tendency to consider what Julie mentioned earlier, a plea deal. Doesn't it? I mean, do all roads not lead to more plea deals here? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, when you, I mean, the numbers are just staggering. And uh, it's great to see Ali Uderbrook with the Albuquerque Journal getting, you know, some of this in-depth type of coverage mm-hmm. and, and stuff. But, you know, 276 jur- felony jury trials in a four-week period. That's just mind-boggling. And so what that tells me is, is that, you know, yeah, there are a lot of plea deals. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, Matt uh, Matt Chavez, uh, when he said that uh, do innocent people get convicted? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's really concerning because, you know, he, you have folks who are, you know, were arrested for a reason or cited for a reason. Uh, and uh, but they don't necessarily have a chance to really defend themselves the way that they want to uh, in court. And so as a result, you have folks who will uh, plea bargain out uh, for a lesser uh, lesser sentence just to get on with their life. And and that, I think, is a is is not a good reflection of the justice system at all. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I think it's really important to note, too, that that the root of this is about fully funding the judiciary. Thank you. You know, but speedy trials are a real thing that people are, you know, allowed to expect under the Constitution. And when you are trying to cram the public defender's office into, to, you know, adequately defending, you're trying to, you know, cram all this stuff in and there's not enough money. Uh, you know, that's really the, the problem here. And that is something that our government can can act on. Laura, let me follow up on that. That's a very good point. I know you know this, but for the folks watching, if you haven't seen felony felony arraignments, especially here in Albuquerque or at a busier court, it's really quite something. I mean, the word circus came up with attorneys on both sides wheeling stacks and boxes of case files in and out. Sometimes they've only given the briefest look to those things. Are we pushing too much to the court, Laura? Should we just expect that, you know, this is the natural result of pushing all this to the courtroom? Well, I mean, there's a lot of problems with our system, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the backlog in the courts is, is one of them. Um, there's just an adequacy, uh, inadequacy of resources across the board. And so you have, you know, from the, from the officers and the arresting, um, you know, agencies to processing at the jails to, you know, the, the actual um, court staff, mm-hmm. uh, judges, everybody is overwhelmed. And, right. and the public defenders in particular um, are also extremely understaffed very difficult to keep people um, employed in those positions too because there's such high burnout um, because of this kind of um, process so you end up having um, folks who who are in those jobs that are not staying for very long they develop an expertise they go out and they see you know greener pastures elsewhere so it is a very very huge 
problem and one that I think Julie brings up an important point. We could address this and there should be more attention paid to funding the judiciary adequately, mm-hmm. um, as well as other you know, law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tom, quick question. Do policymakers really need to rethink what it means to be tough on crime? Is that what's going on here as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think we have to redefine what that soundbite really means. Uh, you know, it's, uh, is it, you know, so yeah, I, I think that there's an, always an opportunity to kind of, you know, not just use that soundbite, but say, okay, what exactly does that mean? Right. Does that mean more arrests? Does it mean more convictions? Does it mean, you know, and to, to Julianne's point, you know, it's really, you know, properly funding the judiciary uh, has been something that has been an issue for the last, you know, what, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stuff. So, you know, that's, that I think is, is one of the roots of the issues. The other is, is that, you know, you have, uh, you know, uh, varied uh, elected officials, different parts of the state who all have a different, uh, you know, uh, watermark about what that uh, means being tough on crime. Mm. Julianne, last word, I got a minute on, on this on tough on crime. Same question. Have we, something just has gone off the rails here with this idea? Certainly. I mean, I think I, I mentioned before that I feel like this is a buzzword uh, that's used by a you know certain segment of, of voters. Mm-hmm. It's certainly coded language. Um, we know that our criminal justice system has been unfairly implemented on, you know, name the group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, we have a lot of work to do on that front. And the definition of, of tough on crime uh, doesn't doesn't really further the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So I'm curious to see, you know, what will unfold in New Mexico as we explore different ways to to deal with this. I think all of these um, ideas are antiquated and we don't do ourselves a, a service by just, you know, sticking with the existing paradigm. Sure. Good last word there. Hey, thanks to all of our panelists for their research and thoughts this week. Remember, you can always let us know what you'd like to see on the show by catching up with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. That will do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. But we've got much more great stuff from the show this week, including some extras that will be coming up in our next episode. We will be uh, looking at a Facebook Live we did this week where we found out about UNM's plans for a return to campus this fall. They had been floating a vaccine mandate, and we'll let you know what the final decision was there and how the university is preparing for that. Also tied to UNM, a major study that covered New Mexico as well as the rest of the country that really looks at what is keeping those folks who haven't already been vaccinated from getting vaccinated. A fascinating uh, study that looks into um, minority communities as well. We'll break that all down with UNM professor uh, Gabe Sanchez, great friend of the show, fascinating conversation there. Also, another fascinating conversation about the toll that the COVID-19 pandemic took on the education system. It's something we have talked about at length, but there was a terrific article done in Searchlight New Mexico as part of their Hitting Home project, really looking at the impacts on the Navajo Nation, where broadband is really lacking and a lot of that infrastructure is lacking. Stories of people driving for hours, to get near hotspots or Wi-Fi systems so they can do schoolwork. Just really heartbreaking stuff and, and things that we will be facing 
and trying to recover from for years. So I encourage you to tune in for all of that on the next episode. Until then, we thank you as always for listening. Please leave us a review on this podcast. We really do appreciate that. Spread the word for others to follow and get this uh, important information each and every week in their podcast feeds. Uh, But until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. I'm Kevin McDonald, New Mexico In Focus executive producer.